bringing you the truth behind the news. Welcome to The New American. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for joining us. It's November 28th, and I'm Steve Bonta, filling in for my colleague Paul Dragu, who's still on vacation but will be back. There's a scandal brewing in the United Arab Emirates and just in time for the UN's COP28 climate conference. Also, the infamous yet influential hockey stick graph that is used as foundational evidence to support climate alarmism has been further discredited. And the truce in Gaza has been extended two more days. We have those stories coming up. But first, world dignitaries and delegates, including assorted globalists, Marxists, communists, and climate alarmists, or do I repeat myself, will be meeting in Dubai beginning this Thursday for their annual UN-sponsored Conference of the Parties Climate Talks, or COP28 for short. Their mission is nothing less than to save the planet from much ballyhooed climate change, or, not to put too fine a point on it, to shackle the planet in the name of saving it. The New American will also be in Dubai, the UAE's most prosperous emirate, to observe firsthand the goings-on at the two-week conference, as opposed to getting all our news about COP28 through the prism of the major media. Usually at these confabs, the globalists talk very openly about their plans to impose socialistic global governance on the rest of us, though their rhetoric is sanitized somewhat when reported by the major media to the uninitiated. This year's annual UN Climate Conference and the major media reportage of it should not be any different. If you're at least a little bit concerned about what may come out of COP28, you should be. One of the subjects in the spotlight at this year's Climate Summit is your dinner table, especially the meat you serve. Bloomberg reports that the plan is for people in wealthy countries like ours to, quote, eat less meat, unquote. It's part of the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organizations, or FAO's, comprehensive plan to reach net zero by 2050 and will be part of a document that is expected to be unveiled at COP28. It seems that the depopulationists who populate the halls of the UN and its confabs have determined that livestock farming contributes greatly to the carbon footprint of rich nations. They say it is, quote, a major source of methane, deforestation, and biodiversity loss. Although non-binding, the FAO's plan is expected to inform policy and investment decisions and give a push to the food industry's climate transition, which has lagged other sectors in commitments, unquote. This, according to Bloomberg. Of course, the main culprit is among meat-loving criminals is, according to FAO, North America, where people consume an average of 127 kilograms of meat per year. That's a lot of meat. By comparison, the amount in some African countries is as low as 3 kilograms annually. So, the Rome-based UN agency recommends a lifelong fast for those who it says overconsume meat while encouraging developing countries to improve their livestock farming, in quotes. Yet almost in the same breath, it proposes measures aimed at crippling livestock farmers everywhere, such as severe restrictions on fertilizer. Those constraints are already reality in many areas, as highlighted by James Patrick in his documentary, Nitrogen 2000. Here are some excerpts. Our government did say we need to uh, reduce 95% uh, of nitrogen uh, in this uh, Nature 2000 area. The farmers are targeted, and why are the farmers targeted? Because they have land. Well, there you have it, the bureaucratic one-two punch, grabbing land while causing a food crisis. Let's not forget that the Dutch are second only to the United States in agriculture exports. Well, 
Welcome back, Gary. Gary Benoit, the editor-in-chief of The New American, is with me to get today. My, he's been very stalwart this week. Um, Gary, you know, what do you think about this whole – This, I, I think I know what you think, but I'd like to hear you say it anyway – about the, the UN's agenda, the so-called green agenda. We use the term shackling the planet. Is that an overstatement? Not at all. And uh, maybe it would have sounded like an overstatement, Steve, to people years ago – but the one good thing that's happening is that the agenda, the UN agenda for making the globalists the masters of the universe and the masters of all of us is becoming more and more obvious. And as it's becoming more obvious, uh, I think more people realize that really what they're talking about is shackling the planet in the name of saving it. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, when we use phrases like "masters of the universe," mm -hmm. obviously, if 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 one of their reps were here, they would object strenuously to this almost cartoonish caricature. But it's true; it right. really is. They may not; they may themselves, and some of them, I'm sure, have the best of intentions. They often do, um, but they, they 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 say, in effect, well, yes, we know that this is going to entail loss of sovereignty and loss of freedom, but we have to take action. Because otherwise, the planet itself will be destroyed. Look at global warming. Look at loss of biodiversity. Look at the destruction of rainforests and other critical biomes worldwide. <clears throat> look at the ongoing uh, gap between north-south. So I'm playing the devil's advocate a little bit. Sure. But what would you say to that? Because they would maintain, well, you know, maybe we have to rethink this whole project of, you know, of, of, of more freedom and, more, you know, sovereign nations and this the system that we've had since pretty much the beginning of time. I would say they're propagating a big lie, Steve. And they're saying it so often that it becomes truth in the minds of a lot of people. Uh, this All this propaganda about climate change specifically goes back a long ways. And I can remember hearing that propaganda in high school. I, I can remember the first Earth Day, which at the time was called an environmental teaching. That was back in 1970. And in 1970, what they were warning about was not global warming. They were warming, warning about global cooling. Uh, over the years, that propaganda has changed. And so for many years now, the threat has become global warming. But uh, if you go back over the years and look at what has been said, if you look at what Al Gore and others have said, uh, they're always warning that catastrophe is just around the corner. And uh, it's simply not happening. The, uh, the, the supposed runaway global warming that we should have seen by now simply has not uh, occurred. Well, one of the things we don't hear as much about now, although it's still kind of out there, um, but back in the 70s when you and I were mm -hmm. you know, kind of coming of age, there was a guy um, named uh, Paul Ehrlich. Oh, he's yes. still alive in point of fact. He wrote the book The Population Bomb. Right, and he's, he's recently followed up with, with other tomes, mm -hmm. and he's, he's sort of a mod modern Malthusian. <clears throat> and I mean, Malthus lived more than 200 years ago. He's the guy that... Uh, at, an economist, sort of, a pretender economist, mm -hmm. who claimed that overpopulation was going to be a problem. And he was making this claim way back in the late 1700s. And so Paul Ehrlich is sort of a warmed-over version right. of Malthusianism. And he claimed in the, his most famous book, The Population Bomb, that eventually, you know, the world would be overrun with people. And you still hear people say, well, you know, pretty sure. soon we're going to have two, 10 billion people on the planet. But that, it turns out, is not a good as, as good a selling point as climate changes, because, of course, the obvious solution to so-called population problem is let's cull the population. And nobody really wants to be culled right. that much, right? So, yep. we, so, so some of the focus has shifted, and specifically to this climate issue, which has become, particularly since last year's COP27, which, by the way, we also 
covered. We had people last year in Sharm el Sheikh, Egypt, who covered that, mm-hmm. and and it ended up agreeing on, the, the, on this this first ever international accord for what are called loss and damage payments in the name of climate indemnity. In, in effect, uh, the rich, the developed countries of the world, you, us obviously, and others will be forking over trillions of dollars a year, literally paying to all the poor countries because. Our alleged industrialization has destroyed their climate and is responsible for keeping them poor. And, of course, it's, it's yeah. just the opposite. But let's, let's talk about that for a moment, Steve. The, uh, the difference between the affluence that we have had in the Western world and, in particular, that we enjoy the, uh, in the United States uh, compared to, let's say, the, the third world. Why is that? Uh, obviously, uh, when you look at the record, it's not because of exploitation of the third world. Uh, it's because of the free enterprise system. It's because people have been able to create, uh, to keep the fruits of their labor, and uh, they've been able to create uh, tremendous abundance. And we have authoritarian regimes, and when people are held down, that simply does not happen. So the solution is not to destroy the living standard, the middle-class living standard that we have here. The solution instead is to have other countries follow the example of those who have enjoyed the benefits of free enterprise. Right, and we should point out, too, that, that, that the path is easier for them now than it was for us because, you know, the, it's already a well-trod path, yes. you know. And so, in truth, they don't necessarily need to log as many forests as we do because now right. everything's done in computers, for example. So, that, you know, there are a lot of things like that that I think are, 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 are beneficial to these newly emerging economies if they would just make the political and economic adjustments. Well, we'll talk more about this. Next up, just in time for COP28, there's a scandal brewing in the United Arab Emirates. Sophia paused before the door. It read, Department of Biodigital Convergence. Just inside was a new world, a better world, the one of everlasting life, of no pain, of no loss, of no problem. She entered the chamber and her surroundings changed. She saw around her an infinite field of waving golden grain surmounted by cloudless blue sky. The AI voice whispered gently in her mind, Welcome to the singularity. She couldn't see it and couldn't feel it, but her body had almost instantly been covered by a swarm of tiny gray multi-legged bots that melted through her clothes and into her skin. Not perceiving the nightmare, her eyes had already been consumed and the rest of her body was dissolving as the bots digested her flesh. She felt only a warmth suffusing her being. Drowsy, she drifted to sleep, and her last thought was one of panic. Would she ever wake? Could a nightmare vision like this be an outcome of the much-hyped transhumanist technological singularity? Enter the world of the future, as illuminated by the experience of the past in Endgame. The new book by Dennis Barrett, the publisher of The New American Magazine, and find out how the disastrous COVID pandemic response fits with the technocratic elite's thirst to create a transhumanist utopia. Get Endgame from ShopJBS.org with free shipping with code ENDSHIP, E-N-D-S-H-I-P. Or get Endgame and the Great Reset Collector's Issue of the New American Magazine and get free shipping plus an additional 20% off both with code N20, E-N-D-2-0. Welcome back, everyone. Well, there's a scandal brewing in the UAE, the United Arab Emirates, just in time for COP28, which we just talked about in the last segment. This year's event is aiming to build on last year's negotiated agreement, which mandated so-called loss and damage climate indemnity payments from developed nations to poor nations, which, if carried out, will amount to the largest ever international socialist redistribution of wealth. 
The COP conferences attract a huge number of radical climate activists and heads of state each year. And this year, like last year, as we mentioned previously, the New American will be bringing you live on-site coverage of the event. But before the conference even starts, a scandal has erupted. It has emerged that the host country, the aforementioned UAE, is secretly trying to exploit the event to cut oil and gas deals with more than a dozen countries, according to documents published for yesterday by the Center for Climate Reporting. Now, we're certainly supportive of developing oil and gas resources and lubricating the gears of capitalism in the process. But the Emiratis are being accused by the environmentalist left of rank hypocrisy for cynically taking advantage of the conference to make money off the very extractive activities that the, the COP participants are trying so hard to curtail. And what unpardonable sins have the Emiratis committed? Well, for one thing, it turns out that they are planning to signal to Germany that they're willing to expand liquid natural gas or LNG supplies to Germany. They also, according to conference planning notes, intend to propose to China cooperation in evaluating international LNG opportunities in countries like Canada, Mozambique, and Australia. And they're even preparing to tell Venezuela and Saudi Arabia that there is, quote, there is no conflict between sustainable development of any country's natural resources and its commitment to climate change, unquote. Moreover, this comes after the UAE appointed Ahmed Al-Jaber, the chief of the UAE's natural oil company and chairman of the board of directors of its national renewable energy company, as president of this year's COP. Environmentalist NGOs are expressing outrage, rather predictably, at the UAE's secretive energy wheeling and dealing, with Greenpeace's policy coordinator Kaisa Kosonen saying, for example, quote, If the allegations are true, this is totally unacceptable and a real scandal. The climate summit leaders should be focused on advancing climate solutions impartially, not backroom deals that are fueling the crisis. Unquote. Well, Gary, the UAE has one of the world's largest oil and gas reserves and is also one of the world's centers of business and finance. What did the COP28 organizers think was going to happen? Well, first if not of all, this? Steve, are you surprised? Because I'm, I certainly am, am not surprised. Not at all. And I have to admit, uh, I, 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 I mean, think it's. I'm, I'm on Team UAE with this right. one. I mean, you know, just, yeah. but but it's yeah, me I mean, too. I mean, the point of the story is not to expose the the alleged wickedness of of, of the Emiratis, mm -hmm. but but rather the hypocrisy of the conference organizers. I mean, in fact, in, I mean, this this thing about Al Jaber was actually news close to a year ago, like ten months ago when they first oh, agreed really? on the UAE. Yeah, I remember covering this. Yeah, I, I think I did we, not we, remember that. We had one article on it online, I think, mm -hmm. in the New American back at, <clears throat> early this year, mm -hmm. and. And and so this yep. was pointed out early on that, the, the, you know, they, my goodness, they've taken basically the top guy in their government who's in charge of oil and natural gas drilling and exploratory and all this stuff. And they've put him, they've made him the president of the COP because, because the host country is expected mm -hmm. to name a president for each COP conference. Sure. So Egypt did it last year. This year it's the UAE's turn. You know, and the UAE is only, A, one of the top financial and economic centers in the world, particularly banking. Okay, so I mean, the, the Emiratis are all about making money in any way they can. And number two, um, you know, they have, um, you know, it, it, it sits atop a huge oil reserve. Sure. I mean, this is one of the wealthiest countries in the world, perhaps. In, in Dubai, you can buy gold bars out of ATMs. And the auto lots where people dump their used autos are full of, of, um, of rusting, sand-blown Bentleys and Lamborghinis instead of, you know, um, the, kind, the types of junk that we Americans drive around. So this place is seriously wealthy. And surprise, surprise, you know, they're using this big international conference sure. to 
kind of wheel and deal behind the scenes. I don't have a problem with that myself. You could say, though, it's a case of do as I say, not as I do. Uh, because obviously, Steve, they are not against wealth. Uh, they're, they're not against uh, the use of, of resources uh, that are underneath the, the ground. Uh, but uh, I, I'm sure they enjoy uh, monopoly. And they can certainly create that by uh, promoting this environmentalist alarmist agenda to get other people to turn off the oil spigots so that they can have the price of their oil go up. Well, it's just that it seems to me that if you're having a conference on the environment, this is just, I, mm-hmm. I will be going there, as you know. So right. sure. I, I guess I have, it's just not full, full, full admission here. But um, if you're going to have a conference that focuses on improving the world's environment, why would you put it in a country that has literally destroyed a bunch of coral reefs to, to create an entire, <laughs> an unprecedented artificial archipelago offshore, sure. has the world's highest skyscraper, is in every respect probably one of the world's most conspicuous symbols of of consumerism. Not that I have a problem with any of this, but I'm just saying from the point of view of an environmentalist, why wouldn't you choose, oh, I don't know, a country that actually has an environment. For example, uh, one of these, uh, a country like Ecuador or Costa Rica, mm-hmm. which, which are both known for this kind of thing. You know, I realize they don't have the sort of swank accommodations that these types of jet setters are accustomed to going to. But at least these are countries where there is a sincere interest and, and actually a fairly significant cottage industry um, in, in so-called ecotourism. And, they, you know, they have a conservationist ethic. Not sure that really is very conspicuous well, in the UAE. Sure. It could be that the globalists who plan the conference are not that concerned about the optics hmm. because they probably feel, and they have for many years, uh, feel like they control the, the narrative. Hmm. And, uh, you know, how many, uh, how much publicity is this going to get? <clears throat> yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, you know, I, I say this as someone, as you know, I think I've mentioned this in the program before, but I enjoy bird watching and mm-hmm. I'm willing to pay some money to go to exotic places to do it. And in the course of doing that, I tramp around in the, in, in the rainforest and get sweaty and mosquito bitten and all the rest of this stuff. Um, uh, I kind of doubt that these limousine liberals, most of them have ever right. done such a thing. I, I would be interested sure. to know, for example, if Al Gore, who doubtless will put in an appearance at some point during the conference, uh, and Jim K- or John Kerry and all, all these types of eminence greases that always show up at these events, if they've ever actually experienced, you know, camping out in a rainforest or hiking in 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 in, in well, a in, in, in a desert or something right, like they that. They obviously enjoy a, a very. Uh, very affluent lifestyle. They do. I mean, they're, they're you used refer to, to them as limousine liberals. Uh, hmm. You've referred to them as jet setters. And uh, so once again, it comes down to do as I say, not what I do. Uh, they are after uh, control of people, uh, control of the environment, uh, control of everything. And they imagine themselves being the, the controllers. And so while they're worried about the meat on your dinner plate, for example, and they're concerned uh, that you might be eating uh, too much meat or maybe eating too much turkey even for uh, for thanks, Thanksgiving, uh, that affects the great body of, of the peoples throughout the world, but uh, they're not looking at themselves. Well, and they, and they, you know, and they tend to live in, in urban areas. I mean, I remember the, you know, the first time I ever set foot in the rainforest in India, I was eaten alive by leeches at the end of one afternoon of hiking. I had blood all over my legs and wounds that didn't heal for days. 
you know. And I, after that, I thought, okay, I get it. This is why people don't live in places like this. Right. This is why they will, you know, given the chance, they will tend to cut down and clear and have cattle and, and, and raise crops over. Because so, some of these areas, pristine and beautiful though they are from a safe distance, you know, are, are, are pretty intimidating. When you, when you see, you know, the same could be said about the high Arctic and all these other environments that, that they're sure. so concerned about. And it does give you a different perspective. And people who actually live in these parts of the world who have to make a living, you know, can't do it by watching birds. You know, they, they have to raise manioc or whatever it happens to be to make things work. Anyway, well, thanks a lot, Gary. Hey, folks, The New American just released our latest collector's edition bookazine. It's called Self-Reliance, Foundation of Freedom. Without individual responsibility and the ability to take care of ourselves without government help, we cannot be free. This published collector's edition includes articles on a number of topics, including the self-sufficiency of the founders, preparing for a worst-case scenario, firearm self-reliance, financial self-reliance, the importance of community, and many other things. The authors are all experts on their respective topics, and we encourage you to get a copy or copies. You can order copies at thenewamerican.com shop or by calling our office at 800-727-8783. Next up, more on the infamous and influential climate change hockey stick graph. Freedom is the cure. You're dead on. This is the largest experiment performed on human beings in the history of the world. The more you know. What they're doing is they're forcing vaccination on people. And I believe they are killing people with this vaccination. The freer you are. It's murder. They are basically murdering people in hospitals. The all-cause mortality we know is now higher in the vaccinated group than the unvaccinated group. Stay informed on the issues that affect freedom. Get a subscription to The New American today. TheNewAmerican.com Welcome back, everyone. Well, we can credit much of the climate scaremongering that makes UN summits such as COP28 a reality to the infamous yet influential hockey stick graph composed by Pennsylvania State University professor of meteorology, Michael Mann. For those who may not be familiar, here's a quick refresher. Michael Mann first obtained the hockey stick curve back in 1999 in a reconstruction of the Earth's temperature over the past millennium. The hockey stick is this long-term cooling followed by a dramatic warming that we see here. It looks like a hockey stick. It shows that Earth started warming with the Industrial Revolution. Well, since its introduction more than two decades ago, the hockey stick graph has continued to influence United Nations climate research and thereby governmental climate policies across the globe. So much so that last year, political commentator Alex Epstein, in an interview with Megyn Kelly, blamed Mann and his cohorts for current skyrocketing energy prices. One of our leading experts, a climate scientist named Michael Mann, has a whole book about fossil fuels and climate. And he talks a lot about agriculture, but he only talks about negative side effects, about how warming might harm agriculture in some area. But he doesn't talk about the fact that 8 billion people depend on fossil fuels for their food. And so it's no wonder we have restricted fossil fuels. Prices are skyrocketing and people are threatened with starvation. And I put that on Michael Mann and our other designated experts for deliberately making us ignorant about the unbelievable benefits of fossil fuels. 
In fact, man has maintained his eco-status despite the fact that he was at the center of the 2009 ClimateGate scandal when hackers stole hundreds of incriminating emails from a British university and published them on the internet. The emails revealed that British and American researchers engaged in fraudulent reporting of data to favor their own climate change agenda. Mann even called climate skeptics idiots. Then there was Mann's claim in a 2012 lawsuit that he was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize, despite the Nobel Committee in Norway flatly denying the assertion. Mann has also repeatedly refused to release his research data behind the hockey stick, even when subpoenaed to do so in a court of law. He argued that confidential information about his research methods would be revealed by doing so. It certainly would have been revealed, or maybe exposed is a better word. Now it has been, thanks to a Swedish scientist by the name of Hampus Soderqvist. Using information from Mann's original 1998 report in the journal Nature, Soderqvist reverse-engineered the hockey stick construction to find that it is a splice of 11 different data sets. On his blog Climate Audit, Statistical analyst and longtime man critic Steve McIntyre provides a technical explanation of Soderquist's findings. McIntyre notes that many researchers through the years have attempted to replicate man's results with no success. He called the ploy that Soderquist discovered Mike's nature trick and emphasized the importance of this breakthrough. Okay, Gary, well, it sounds like Michael Mann has finally been unmanned, but we'll see about that. So do you think this is that Soderquist's important find is going to maybe have any influence over our government's environmental policies, even in the long term? It depends on what we do, Steve, and what our listeners and, and viewers do. Uh, it depends on how many people get involved, because the, the whole thing is based on a lie. And uh, I, I can't uh, speak regarding uh, man specifically uh, as to where he is in the pecking order re regarding the, the globalist dials that have been set to take control of the, the planet Earth. But, uh, but nonetheless, at the top, uh, there is a conspiracy. There are people working together to try to bring about global control. They're using climate change uh, as a pretext for that. And whether or not that agenda will be exposed depends on what, what we do to, to expose that agenda. Yeah, I mean, it, it's just it's maddening stuff that that this the, the, the these folks can 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 lie and then leverage, of course, their their academic bona fides. In this case, the man I think is, is has an endowed chair at Penn State University, very prestigious type of situation. Mm -hmm. He's apparently untouchable, and his claims are apparently also unassailable. And he continues, by the way, to be to be a, a factor in the in the climate change debate. He's recently made some controversial complaint uh, claims in a, in a famous paper involving, I think it's dendrochronology or something like some, some kind of dating of, uh, you know, deep, deep climate change from thousands of years ago and, and, and this kind of thing. So he's still out there contributing research and making, you know, making a fuss. And he should have been uh, kicked out, frankly, kicked sure. out of academia decades ago for this kind of fraudulent activity. But of course, this particular fraud is useful in advancing a particular political cause. As the meme on Facebook goes, you know, I followed the money and found the science instead of follow yes. the science per se. And that's that's kind of what you have to do. Well, the truce in Gaza has been extended two more days following the release of an additional 11 Israeli hostages, all women and children, in exchange for 33 Palestinians, reportedly 29 teenage boys, who are being uncritically labeled in the sympathetic press as children, along with three women, were freed. 
And Israeli forces continue to arrest Palestinians in the Gaza campaign to ongoing international outrage, as though the more than 1,000 terrorists who invaded Israel back on October 7th were operating in a complete vacuum. Among Palestinians still in detention is Ahed Tamimi, a young woman writer who has been portrayed as a Palestinian Rosa Parks for her outspoken criticism of Israeli occupation. Late last month, Tamimi expressed the spirit of the entire Hamas so-called resistance when she wrote, quote, You'll say that what Hitler did to you was a joke. We'll drink your blood and eat your skulls, unquote. She has now joined countless other Palestinians in indefinite detention under suspicion of terrorist activities. Well, Gary, I mean, the, uh, this, I mean, you know, <laughs> look at the picture of that young woman and she looks like the girl next door. But I know, she but she's not the girl next door, She's not she? the girl next door. Right. And I mean, yep. the, 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 the issue, it seems to me, at least one of the many issues in this, this whole matter, is that people looking at it from a clinical point of view that insist on imposing this moral equivalency on the Israelis and Palestinians. And of course, now, you know, they're, they're screaming bloody murder. The Israelis gasp are rounding up people and detaining them. Okay, well, there Maybe was a massive a terrorist attack. Right. Okay? And if you look at the sorts of things that we did in the wake of 9-11, we did exactly what we wanted to do. And we told the whole world, this is what we're going to do. We made some mistakes, to be sure. We, did some, we, we definitely did some things that were inappropriate, that were dealt with. But for yeah. us to have the unmitigated gall from President Biden, Biden on down to hector the Israelis about the, you know, the importance of proper moral conduct and obviously pressuring them to maintain the ceasefire now indefinitely if they think they can get away with, with doing it. Um, when clearly a large number of people in Gaza, not to paint too broad a brush and all of that, um, but a large number of them are sympathetic with and aiding and abetting what Hamas is trying to do and certainly qualify for investigation. Sorry, folks, but when you go and kill innocent women and children, systematically, this is what happens. And I don't want to hear the stuff about all the wicked things the Israelis are doing, because if you look at press stories, we don't have time to do it today, but maybe in a future show we will. There are a lot of news reports from the likes of BBC that report on all the stuff that goes on as a matter of course. And when Israeli soldiers shoot and kill somebody who's throwing a bomb at them or throwing rocks, they always say things like Israeli soldiers killed a Palestinian. But when Palestinians kill Israelis, which happens with equal frequency, it always says, you know, three Israeli settlers were killed. They never say Palestinians killed Israelis. Very subtle. And there are lots of things, you know, that encourage this, this false idea that the Palestinians are as pure as the driven snow. If that's true, then why is it that all the supposedly sympathetic neighboring Arab regimes refused to give them refuge? You know, the border with Egypt, between Egypt and Gaza, is routinely closed. The first thing the Egyptians did after October 2nd, 7th was seal the border. And the reason is because they know that there is a strong, you know, terroristic, sympathizing, and troublemaking element among the Gazan Palestinians in particular, and they don't want to deal with it. Yeah, I'd like to go back, Steve, to the quote that you provided from the so-called Palestinian Rosa Parks. Because uh, I, I really think we should keep this quote very much in mind. You'll say that what Hitler did was a joke. We'll drink your blood and eat your skulls. Mm -hmm. Why isn't that on the front page of every major newspaper in the United States and elsewhere in the world? Because uh, of, you know, quite frankly, not to make too fine of one of, but because of 
of anti-Semitism, right. hatred of Jews. Now, of course, the liberals will never admit that. They, oh, no, 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 it's the state of Israel that we're opposed to it. But they always hold the Jews in Israel to a much higher standard than they hold anyone else, certainly themselves. Yeah, no doubt and about that, that. That in itself is revealing yeah. enough. So I wish we had more time to talk about this because, as you can tell, it's yeah, a bit of a hot-button <laughs> issue for me, but maybe in a future future episode. Well, folks, next up, we'll be discussing in more detail the New Americans' upcoming trip to Dubai. Stay tuned. The John Birch Society has been working tirelessly since 1958 to preserve freedom, safeguard the Constitution, and restore our God-given rights. We continually educate voters and lead the freedom movement. Join us as we work against a tyrannical one-world government. United as one, we can defeat this conspiracy against a free America. JBS founder Robert Welch said, education is our total strategy and truth our only weapon. Join us in restoring this great nation. Well, welcome back, everybody. So with me remotely is my colleague, Alex Newman. Alex and I are going to be heading to Dubai next week to cover the COP28 climate conference that we discussed in some detail in previous sections of today's show. So, Alex, first of all, congratulations are in due. Are due. You've got your press accreditation as of today. For our, our listeners and viewers, this can be quite a complicated process uh, to get accredited. You don't just show up and walk into these events. You have to get accredited ahead of time. It can be very bureaucratic, and sometimes there are these un- unaccountable delays. And in the case of, of poor Alex, he was left twisting in the wind for what? Three, four weeks, something like that, Alex, right? But uh, Yeah, uh, I mean, we're, we're, what, two days away, three days away from the conference starting, and I still had not gotten approved, and you need the approval letter to get a visa, and you, uh, it's a nightmare. But uh, anyways, we just got it today. We're very pleased about that. And so, uh, God willing, we'll be on a plane next week. Yep. So Wagons West, we're about ready to go. So Alex, you have been to how many of these before? This is my first rodeo with these these climate conferences, but you've been to a bunch of them. Tell our viewers and listeners in general what we can expect next week. Well, yeah, I have been going to these since uh, 2009 was my first one. Fresh out of journalism school, I went to the COP15 in Copenhagen with uh, the great William F. Jasper, uh, the senior editor at TNA, a senior editor at TNA. Um, And it's been a steady decline since then. I mean, they've been becoming less and less fun, less and less uh, humorous and more and more scary and more and more you know dark and uh, gloomy. And I, I watched the evolution from global warming to climate change, to climate crisis, to climate emergency, to climate hell and global boiling. Uh, but uh, the, the way I've been explaining this one, Steve, is, you know, at the last one uh, we were there, uh, I was there with Annika and uh, the rest of our team. We were there and uh, they basically Joe Biden. That, that was and John in, Kerry, in Egypt, correct? That was in Egypt, yeah, on the Sinai Peninsula. So, you know, the real big news out of there, what we put on the cover was the kind of the religious component. They came out with the new Ten Commandments. They went to the top of Mount Sinai and did this bizarre uh, climate repentance ceremony. Uh, uh, very much reminded me of, like, you know, the, the prophets of Baal uh, dancing in front of Elijah like lunatics. Uh, just really weird stuff. But, um, you know, on the political and the economic front, what happened on, as far as the climate negotiations go is they uh, basically declared that the United States and the Western world were responsible for the climate crisis. Uh, Joe Biden and John Kerry pled guilty on behalf of our country. Uh, basically, every tornado, every hurricane, every drought, every fire, every snowfall, every everything uh, is the fault of Americans because we invented so many things. We extended people's lives by 40 or 50 years on average. We liberated people from backbreaking labor. Uh, and so now we get to pay for that because, again, we've already been uh, we've already pled guilty. 
And so this next one in Dubai, I think of this as like the sentencing, right? So so Joe Biden, John Kerry pled guilty for us at this one in Dubai. They're going to calculate exactly how much of our money they need to steal for reparations to kind of make everybody whole for all the ter- horrible things we unleashed on humanity. And then um, and then the mechanism through which they're going to extract it from the middle class and redistribute it to the kleptocrats uh, who have impoverished and kept impoverished the third world. There was a an additional. Yeah. So so the, so this massive the so-called loss and damage payments, which we also mentioned in an earlier segment today, and we've talked about before in this show, um, what what it amounts to is possibly the largest ever transfer of wealth from the so-called haves to the have-nots. So it's it's literal socialism. We all know that that's what socialism is about, but on a grandiose worldwide scale, and of course invoking the sacred name of the planet and preserving the climate. But, you know, there was another issue, Alex, that cropped up last year that I remember we reported on a bit. I, I don't think it was bruited. Well, it was mentioned at, at COP27, but I don't think it, it had center stage the same way the loss and damage payments did. But but for all of that, I think is equally significant, potentially. And this is the drive to create the first ever global tax. And the word was that it was going to be phased in by the end of this year or early next year. It was to be a tax on international shipping, I believe, the merchant marine type vessels. And it was essentially a a proto-carbon tax. And as with all these things, it was, oh, it's just a little tiny amount. It won't be an inconvenience. And we may follow this out with up with an international jet fuel tax. But the point is that it would if it if if it were ever were enacted, the principle of the thing and the reality, the practice of the thing also, would confer on the United Nations system for the first time ever a truly independent stream of revenue. And also, as a as a bona fide taxing authority, it would have made it another critical step into the realm of being a true world government, because that's one of the things governments do. They have the authority to levy taxes. My question to you is, have you heard anything about that with respect to this year's conference? Yeah, they're, they're actually working on that. They've been working on this through the climate negotiations as long as I have been going to these things. They've been plotting a global tax, and they were going to do one on financial transactions. They were going to do one on shipping. They were going to do one on air travel. They were going to do one on uh, different uh, types of stock transactions. And you know, it's only going to be like a 0.0001%, but as you point out, it won't stay that way for long. And you're right, the implications of this are huge. Uh, this would allow the UN to fund its own armies, its own police forces, its own kangaroo courts. It would if it become, at that point, a de facto one world government. And at the same time, uh, in parallel with this, they're working on turning the International Monetary Fund into a truly global central bank that would be able right. to print currency out of thin air. Uh, they're already doing this to some extent. Uh, they call it the Special Drawing Rights, SDRs, whereby they create liquidity. They like to use fancy terms to confuse people. What they're doing is they're stealing money from everybody who owns uh, the currencies that make up the basket of currencies that underpin the SDR, uh, and then redistributing it to, say, the mullahs in Iran or whoever they feel like uh, sending it to. So uh, this effort to impose global taxes, this effort to turn the IMF into a true global central bank uh, would empower the global government, the emerging global government, like nothing ever before in all of human history. And that all, of course, leads up to the summit of the future that they're going to hold in September of 2024. Uh, I've been Mm -hmm. comparing that to the next constitutional convention for the UN, where they want to really restructure things. They want to grant all these new powers to the UN. So all this is kind of converging. And the climate hoax is the pretext that purports to justify it all. What do you think about this uh, scandal? You've no doubt heard, so-called scandal. It turns out the UAE 
and Mr. Ahmed Al-Jaber, who is actually the head of the UAE's gas and oil policy and has all kinds of – so he's been quietly – he and his, his the other people in the UAE government have been quietly using this COP28 you know, international – I would poly summit or whatever you call it when lots and lots of heads of state converge on a single place to to quietly broker backroom deals regarding oil and gas exploration and development. And now this has been published by a, a British NGO or it's called the Center for Climate Information or something like that. Center spelled with R-E. So, you know, it's British. But in any event, um, and they're saying, oh, this is hypocrisy that they would do this. In other words, they're 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 out there trying to make money on oil and gas development, the very activities that this 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 convention is trying to curtail. Have you been following that story at all? I have. And, and it just shows what we've been saying all along. Only fools truly believe that this is about oil or carbon dioxide. It has nothing to do with oil and carbon dioxide except as a convenient excuse. Uh, and you can see this so clearly with what's going on with communist China. Um, you know, the, the whole climate facade is about dismantling the industries, the factories, the manufacturing, the productive capacity of the Western world and shipping that all to China, where they power everything with coal fired power plants and they're building them faster than we can count them. So, uh, you know, any of these lefty climate nuts who, who got into their head that somehow they're going to stop using fossil fuels as a result of this doesn't really understand what's happening here. It's only the United States. States and the Western world that's not supposed to be using fossil fuels. The communist Chinese can use as much as they want, and they will use as much as they want. That's very, very clear from don't forget going India. back from the very beginning. Yep, India and some of the, some of these other countries, the up and coming socialist type countries. As long as their government is on board with the global socialist program, they're okay with it. It's yep. countries that that have this you know robust insistence on national sovereignty. The U.S. and now a growing number of European and, and Latin American countries. We're seeing this counter trend that we don't have time to talk about, but uh, one wonders what they think of that. It's kind of sad. I mean, you know, as a person who loves the outdoors, and I'm sure you do too, uh, love the, to appreciate the, the creation of God, uh, God's creation, to see all of this being exploited for these rather cynical political aims. And I'm sure, you know, many of the people that we'll talk to next week and the week after will have the best of intentions, but the, you know what they say about the road to hell. And this is, this is kind of what we're, what we're dealing with here. Well, thanks so much, Alex. I really appreciate the time. You're taking the time. Look forward to working with you in Dubai. Take care, my friend. See you there. Thank you, Steve. Well, thank you, everyone, for tuning in to another episode of the New American Daily. Remember to visit thenewamerican.com for more truth behind the news. And if you haven't already, get a subscription to the print edition so you don't miss issues like the one we just talked about. Enjoy the rest of your day and join us tomorrow for another episode.